The KMO Show, Episode 0 Monday, February 27, 2023 Hey, everybody. I'm KMO, and that is not an alias, that is a sobriquet, which is to say it's not meant to hide my identity, it's just, it's a use name. My name is Kevin Michael O'Connor, but very few people in my life call me Kevin. Which is good, because I have close associations with uh, at least a couple other Kevins, and uh, it's good to have a more unique moniker. But I'm best known, I guess, as the host of the long-running Sea Realm podcast, a podcast that I started back in October of 2006. Yes, you heard that right, 2006. And for the first several years that I was doing the podcast, uh, when people asked me what I did, and I told them, I had to explain to them what a podcast was. I have not had to explain that in quite some time. The C in Sea Realm stands for consciousness, and I didn't put a whole lot of thought into what I was going to name the podcast because long before I started the podcast, I had a website called Sea Realm. That's the letter C and then a dash and then R-E-A-L-M. Some of you have heard me say that many, many times. And uh, I had a comic strip. I'm a cartoonist, and when I was in grad school, I did a comic strip for the university newspaper at the University of Missouri in Columbia, Missouri. And that comic strip was just called... C, just the letter C, which stood for consciousness. Something that in my first semester as a grad student, I took a course in Hegel and we read the phenomenology of spirit. And uh, the word Geist in German was translated as consciousness in my translation of the book. And I came to write the word consciousness in my notes so many times that I just came to abbreviate it as C. So C stands for consciousness. And I was participating in various uh, Usenet news groups at the time and later on a listserv called the Church of Virus, which was a, I don't know how seriously it was supposed to be taken as a religion, but it was a proposal for a scientifically crafted mimetic religion, which is to say a religion that is designed to propagate based on the the notion of memes or the theory. I don't think memes quite ever rose to the level of theory, but the uh, the idea of the meme as an information replicator, uh, a unit of culture that is passed around and transmitted and sustained and mutates with in- imperfect copying, creating a, a whole host of new forms. So the letter C as a shorthand representation for the idea of consciousness has been in my consciousness since the 90s. And a friend of mine, who was one of the early guests on the Sea Realm podcast, uh, he just went and, you know, without my asking him to, registered a domain name for me. And that domain name that he registered in, I think, 1995 was Sea Realm, the letter C and then a dash and then R-E-A-L-M, which is a phrase I had been using in online discussions just as shorthand for things happening in the realm of consciousness. So when it came time to start a podcast... I already had the website. The website was mostly a home for comic strips that I had written and drawn and book recommendations and um, also a an extensive library of quotes because I used to send out a daily email that was two juxtaposed quotes. It was called the thought of the day. 
and there was a Thought of the Day archive. You know, if you go to archive.org and click on the Wayback Machine and look at SeaRealm.com from, say, 1997, 98, you can see what I'm talking about. So if this Sea Realm podcast adventure is so well-established, why shut it down? I mean, it's got its own website. It's got some name recognition. Uh, why start again with a new show, new website, new name? Well, a couple of reasons. One is just simply practical. The hyphen, I think, in Sea Realm has caused me a lot of trouble uh, with, with machines uh, and human brains alike. And also, because I've been doing it for so long... The search engines, I think, have just learned to ignore it. Um, it. It just doesn't seem like it wants to grow. And as much as I have enjoyed having a small and dedicated audience for a decade and a half, um, for you know purely practical purposes, it would be good to have more. More people listening and more people interested in my take on the topics that they're interested in. So a, a new partnership with rss.com, which is where my podcast, this new podcast, The KMO Show, will be housed and from which it will be uh, distributed to the world, brings with it, you know, new tools for reaching a new audience. So I want to try that. But also there's another more personal reason for the rebranding, and that is that C Realm, while C stands for consciousness, it certainly does not stand for collapse. Uh, over time, it came to be associated with what I call doomerism. This fixation on the idea that industrial civilization will, in very short order, collapse into a pre-industrial mode. And the particular style of collapse that uh, I was most interested in was the collapse that would result from a shortfall in fossil fuel energy. Our capitalist industrial globalist system is meant to grow and it depends on growth to continue thriving. It's not built to shrink. It's not built to contract gracefully. And so when I first started to take the peak oil notion seriously, again, people would say peak oil theory, it does not rise to the level of a theory. It's a notion. It's an idea. And when I started to take the idea seriously in 2006 and 2007, people like one of my early peak oil guests, Dmitry Orlov, were pointing out that Conventional petroleum production globally peaked in 2005 and that the effects of, you know, a constrained supply would be hitting us any day now. Well, that was 16 years ago. And while 16 years is just a blip in history, in the course of a human being's lifetime, it's a big period. It's a long time to wait for collapse. And when collapse didn't come around... My interests returned to, you know, what they were before I got sidetracked with collapse. I was interested in intelligence, specifically artificial intelligence, advancing technology. At the time, I was thinking also nanotechnology, which I don't think is going to pan out anytime soon. But we've entered into a period where artificial intelligence is moving very quickly. And to me, it is much more interesting than the potential for a collapse of industrial civilization. And I would wager, and I'm not a betting man, but I'd actually put money on this, that advances in artificial intelligence will have a much bigger impact on your life in the near term, say the next decade, than will global shortfalls in fossil fuel energy. But even beyond that, even beyond the predictive failure of the notion of peak oil, when the peak oil scene started to break up, and it is thoroughly broken up now as a result of the uh, cultural bifurcation that our, you know, our global English-speaking culture has gone through, even before then, it was starting to break up. And I would say that the, the last hurrah 
for the peak oil scene was the ASPO conference, the Association for the Study of Peak Oil and Gas, which took place in Washington, D.C. in 2011. I attended, and many of the people whose names you would recognize if you were ever into that scene were in attendance as well. And, you know, we had a a session in the actual Capitol building, down in the basement, but even the basement of the Capitol building is grandiose. But as that scene started to break up and people started to drift off into other scenes, what I started to realize at the time, and which I realize more clearly now in hindsight, is that a lot of the people who were into the notion of peak oil longed for a collapse because they were intensely dissatisfied and disapproving, not only of industrial civilization, but in in the American culture, which has spread globally. And a lot of the people, and I won't mention names here because I don't want to get into public spats with people, but certain individuals in that scene uh, gravitated to environmental catastrophism once the you know, global collapse of industrial civilization from peak oil failed to manifest. And some of them, very tellingly, gravitated to this notion of near-term human extinction, which some people presented as you know, an unfortunate but inevitable uh, event in our near future, and other people openly longed for. You know, there is something called the voluntary human extinction movement, where people have just said, I'm not going to have children, I'm not going to reproduce, because humans are a plague on the planet. And we just need to go away so that the rest of life on Earth can get on with doing the things that life does. And I do not subscribe to this at all. I am a dedicated enemy of this idea. Beyond voluntary human extinction, I I have encountered a group of people uh, who, you know, are antinatalists. They believe that reproducing is morally wrong because the suffering of your offspring is inevitable. And if you have a choice to either limit the amount of future suffering in the world or increase it by having children, that increasing it, even if it means the destruction of your civilization, of your culture, of your species, increasing the amount of future suffering by having children is morally wrong. And I just disagree with that. And, you know, if, if you want to tangle with me on that, we can go round and round, but I'm not going to do that here. I am just going to invoke uh, a quote, a phrase from Penn State business professor John Jordan, who in an article that I read recently used the phrase incessant dystopianism untethered from reality. I will have no truck, no part, no business with incessant dystopianism or doomerism or misanthropy, untethered from reality. I wallowed in it for a long time. I believe it has done me damage, and I will have no part of it going forward. So casting my mind back to the things that I was interested in before my brain got hijacked by doomerism, I've always been a lover of science fiction, both popular science fiction on the screen and less popular, but still very influential science fiction or speculative fiction on the printed page. And I just want to mention a couple pieces of science fiction. I mean, I could just jabber for a full hour here about science fiction stories and novels which have been influential on me and which have stuck with me decades after I've read them. But the two that I want to bring to your attention right now, because I think they've had a very long-lasting impact on my point of view, on my expectations about what could happen in the future, are one, the 1983, I believe it was, short story, which was later expanded to a novel in 1985, Blood Music by Greg Bear. If you go back and you read that original short story, 
which I believe was published in Analog Science Fiction magazine. You know, nobody can predict the future very accurately, particularly the details of, you know, which technologies find a place in our life and which speculative technologies never pan out. If you read Blood Music, it holds up extremely well. In fact, as you're reading it, I expect that you will soon forget that you're reading a story that is 40 years old. But Blood Music is about a biotech singularity where individual cells within a human body gain intelligence through genetic manipulation, gain intelligence such that each cell is essentially the equivalent of a human mind. And you have hundreds of billions of cells you know, within a single human body, each of those a mind unto itself. And they spread, they colonize, they move out into the world, and eventually they end up disassembling or transforming all biological matter on the North American continent into what is essentially, you know, what would come to be known later in singularity circles as gray goo. But nothing is lost. Nobody dies. While the individual bodies of the people who used to live in North America have been subsumed into this, these massive sheets of gray goo, which just sort of are draped over trees and buildings and whatnot, Everybody's individual identity is retained inside of what Greg Bear calls a thought universe, which you could say is a, um, a biological equivalent of cyberspace. This is a very forward-looking short story and later novel. I would recommend the novel, but if you only have time for a short story, it is well worth your time. And the other thing that I want to point out is also a short story that was later expanded into a novel. And this is the short story, We Were Out of Our Minds with Joy, by David Morosek. And that was later expanded into a novel called Counting Heads, which then had at least one sequel, maybe two. And I spoke with David Morosek for the Sea Realm podcast many years ago when I was living on the farm in Summertown, Tennessee. It was a, um, it was a remote interview. He wasn't there you know, on the farm with me. But that was you know, one of the, the interviews, the many interviews that I recorded in my 1991 Ford Ranger pickup truck. <laughs> Just with a cell phone and a, a haphazard means of recording cell phone conversations. Also before the Sea Realm podcast, and this was more in the 90s than in the 80s, which is where, you know, my science fiction, my love of science fiction really stems from, I guess, the 1970s and Star Wars. But I, these days I don't consider Star Wars to be science fiction. And, you know, my my reading of science fiction, which is really the more important aspect of my experience, it started in the 1980s, but in the 1990s, I also read some nonfiction works. You might consider them fictional, uh, particularly that stuff from Terence McKenna. But I, I did encounter the writings and the thought of both Terence McKenna and Robert Anton Wilson. Now, Robert Anton Wilson, again, I encountered in the 80s in the form of fiction. I read his Illuminatus trilogy, but it wasn't until later that I started to read his nonfiction books like Prometheus Rising. And something that I got from both Terence McKenna and Robert Anton Wilson, was the notion that our belief systems are not reality. They are maps of reality, which are useful in certain circumstances, but they did not evolve to give us a full understanding of the universe. Our belief systems and our strategies for getting around in the world are not suited to unlocking the secrets of the universe. They are suited to finding us food, shelter, keeping us safe from predators and enemies, and getting us laid so that we can have children and project our genes and, you know, our whole, our whole project as a species into the future. And Robert Anton Wilson in particular described belief systems, 
as reality tunnels. This is, you know, one, what you're experiencing right now is one possible interpretation of the actual universe in which you live, but it is, it is the interpretation that makes most sense to you as a mammal, as a social primate, as a member of the society in which you live. And when you take psychedelic drugs like LSD or DMT or psilocybin, you get an experience of what life could be like, you know, if your priorities as a biological organism and as a filterer of experience were quite different. Now, as I mentioned, I was in grad school in the 1990s, and I was in grad school for philosophy, and in particular, I was studying the philosophy of science and the philosophy of mind with an eye toward artificial intelligence. At the time, there were two notions of artificial intelligence. There was what was known as good old-fashioned AI or symbolic AI, uh, and there was a what's known as an AI summer, a period when there was a lot of enthusiasm and maybe more importantly, a lot of investment in AI projects in the 1980s for something called expert systems, which were basically uh, software that encoded somebody's expertise in a particular subject matter. And expert systems were hand-coded, they were explicitly written out, and uh, you know they were hand-coded in a very labor-intensive way by people who had extensive knowledge of the subject matter area that they were writing these systems to cover. But there was also a notion at the time, and it hadn't been, it hadn't really borne fruit. It hadn't been demonstrated to have any particular practical application at the time, but there was this notion of connectionism, where you could build a sort of black box, a sort of neural network, uh, where you only really had access to the inputs and the outputs, but you could reinforce the outputs in such a way that you would get closer and closer to, you know, the desired behavior of a system. When I was studying philosophy of mind in the 1990s, this was a notion. This was an idea. But starting from 2012, moving onward, there were many practical applications of this idea. And now this idea is the basis of what today we call machine learning and uh, the, the building and the training of large language models and, and other types of generative algorithms are now creating images which you know, are almost as good, <laughs> except in certain details of anatomy and things, as human artists, as the best human artists. In fact, many human artists are, are very upset because the data sets upon which these algorithms were trained contain images of their own work. And in particular, there is a, a Polish artist named Greg Rutkowski, who is probably the most popular uh, name to invoke when you're describing an image that you want to create. And I know that a lot of uh, artists, both established and, you know, hopeful young artists are very angry at this development and they're pushing back against it. But far more people are excited at the prospect of being able to create these sorts of images. And I'm somebody with a foot in both worlds. You know, I'm a cartoonist. I spent years and years learning to draw, uh, but I never got as good at it as I wanted to be. And I'm very excited at the prospect of using AI tools to create artwork much more quickly than I do now artwork which is more pleasing to the eye, which tells a story more precisely than I can with my own native and honed abilities. And uh, I'm just, you know, I'm somebody who is excited about this technology. But what, what the actual artificial intelligence of our day, and artificial intelligence, I just use that to mean capabilities which until recently were thought to be the exclusive domain of the human mind things like speech recognition and natural language processing. 
image recognition, the creation of new images based on text descriptions of them, things which seem to require an understanding of concepts. But we all have images in our head and ideas that are largely formed and conditioned by decades and decades worth of science fiction media. And for most people, you know, most people don't read science fiction on the page. They just get it off the screen, which means they're getting second and third hand ideas from print science fiction as filtered through TV and movie writers. And these notions, these science fiction notions about robotics and supercomputers and AI that we get from popular entertainment have prepared us poorly for the reality of artificial intelligence as it is emerging very quickly around us right now. In particular, when we envisioned computers and artificial intelligence and the robots that they might uh, you know, pilot through the world, we thought of them as being very literal-minded, very logical, uh, very numerical, very impersonal, non-emotional. You know, the typical robot voice from 20th century science fiction sounds like this. It has no affect. It has no rhythm that conveys meaning. But here we are in 2023, and synthesized computer voices sound like this. This is what a free, text-to-speech generator sounds like. Still kind of sci-fi, but a far cry from the Cylons from the original Battlestar Galactica. By your command. Computer voices are fluid. They are mellifluous. They are expressive. And the images that these generative algorithms create, they're not precise. They're not logical. They don't look like wireframe graphics or blueprints. They are, you know, they're, they're replete with creativity, brushstrokes, atmospheric perspective, dynamic human poses, expressive poses. It's as if the AI that we have unlocked doesn't, it's not very good at the things that a pocket calculator can do. It's not good at math. It's not good at creating readable symbols. It's good at emotionally charged imagery. It seems as though our, you know, our most compelling efforts at artificial intelligence right now are not reproducing the higher brain functions of symbolic, you know, apes, but the sort of subconscious fever dream aspect of our consciousness. And that's not something that science fiction really prepared us to expect. And I would say that most people in our society, you know, they carry smartphones, they use social media, uh, but they're not really paying attention to advances in artificial intelligence. And they're still navigating the world with these old, outdated, and I would say unhelpful notions about what artificial intelligence is and will become. And that is a topic that I intend to explore in great detail in coming episodes of this podcast, The KMO Show. Now, I am also still interested in what's known as artificial general intelligence. And even though the the machine learning and the, the large language models from trained neural network algorithms that we're getting are not behaving in the way that traditional science fiction said computers would behave, and they are definitely not reproducing the, you know, the subjectivity of human consciousness, and I say that with great confidence, they yet might. But there are many people who say that, many people who understand artificial intelligence and who understand the current iteration of artificial intelligence who say that what we have now is an interesting off-ramp 
from the goal, from the highway that is leading to artificial general intelligence, but no, no amount of iterations of these large language models, you know, no increase in the number of billions of parameters that they're built on is going to get us to AGI. And I agree, but it sure is an interesting off ramp. Now, in addition to artificial intelligence and advances in technology, I'm also interested in geopolitics. You know, I was born and lived most of my life thus far in the, the age of globalization. In the post-World War II era, where the United States essentially bribed the rest of the world to let us handle, you know, coordinate everybody's defense to contain the Soviet Union and to contain international communism. And in exchange, we created a world or enabled a world where anybody can trade with anybody, where Commerce on the high seas is safe and protected, and you don't have to have your own navy in order to protect shipments from, you know, your far-flung colonies. This came at great cost to the United States, but the United States, as, uh, as an entity, as a collective organism, decided that it was worth it to defeat Marxism and international communism. But as I say, it came at great cost, and it's a cost that the United States, one, can't really afford to sustain, and also the people of the United States are sick of it. It has come at great cost to us in terms of the blood of our children that get sent overseas to fight needless or counterproductive even uh, engagements, <laughs> things we used to call wars but no longer do. And it's come at great cost financially in terms of international aid and military spending, but also in terms of allowing jobs, you know, working class, industrial jobs that used to provide a middle class living to the people who did them, those jobs have been exported to places where labor is cheaper. And to a lesser extent, but probably a growing extent going into the future, a lot of these jobs have been automated. Now, something that science fiction conditioned us to expect, which is not coming about, is that artificial intelligence would be accompanied by equally quick and significant advances in robotics. And that hasn't happened. So human labor remains necessary. Sorry, but fully automated luxury communism is not in the cards. It's not anywhere close to being technically possible, much less politically desirable. And the most adaptive general purpose labor performing robots are and will continue to be human bodies. I just came from working a job at a ski resort as a snowmaker, which means I was on the mountain five days a week at night, dealing with physically difficult terrain to, to navigate and surprising conditions that required creative thinking and understanding, and just as importantly, fine motor control and manipulation of objects. The resort that I worked at had spent a lot of money trying to automate that system, and it's just not automatable with current technology. You need human beings on site with eyes and hands and brains and capable bodies. And that will remain so for the foreseeable future. But the types of tasks that are being automated are the white-collar jobs, the so-called knowledge work that used to seem like the, the safest or the, the safest type of work that, you know, they, the simple so-called unskilled labor would be susceptible to automation. And that is just not proving to be the case. And in fact, at the start of the 21st century, there was this notion of a technological skill ladder where advances in technology would eliminate jobs at the bottom of the skill ladder, but create new, better paying, more prestigious jobs at the top of the skill ladder. Now, the problem, it was thought, was that it would eliminate 
a larger number of jobs at the bottom of the skill ladder than it would create at the top of the skill ladder. But it turns out that entire notion is just wrong. The jobs that are being eliminated or, and, and whole classes of jobs are not being eliminated. What's happening is that certain tasks associated with certain jobs can be automated such that fewer people performing those jobs can do the same amount of work that a lot of people used to do. But the jobs that are most susceptible are not the ones at the bottom of the skill ladder. They're the ones in the middle, the ones that you never expected would be automated. And this ties into geopolitics. Uh, as I say, the military and transportation costs that are required to sustain a globalized nation where you pick fruit in one country, you send it to a different continent to be, you know, to be polished, you send it to a different country to be packaged, and then you send it possibly even back to its country of or origin to be sold and consumed. That requires a lot of fossil fuels. It requires a lot of infrastructure. It requires a, a lot of industry. And it requires a global military empire to keep all that transport safe from piracy. And the U.S. can no longer afford to, you know, foot the bill for that empire. And the American people are tired of it. We're not interested in it because, you know, it has cost more than money. It has cost jobs. It has cost social cohesion. It has cost us the solidarity, you know, the, the multi-class solidarity that we used to enjoy. I am... I'm a weird creative type who uh, nobody's trying to automate my job as far as I know, because there's just not enough profit to be made doing so. But in some respects, I'm a disinterested observer because I'm not a uh, comfortable member of the professional managerial class, uh, nor am I a full-time toiler down in the trenches of blue-collar labor. I'm just kind of this weirdo sitting on the side commenting on things. But I am interested in geopolitics. I have not followed the, you know, the day-to-day -day, uh, back and forth uh, military developments in the war in Ukraine, but I am certainly interested in you know, the role of Russia going forward in the international community and in the possibility for a post-Putin Russia. I'm also very interested in the notion of demographic collapse. When we mostly worked on farms, it made economic sense for any given family to have a lot of children. Children on the farm are free labor. When you live in a city and living space is scarce and expensive and education is expensive and healthcare is expensive, children become very expensive exotic pets and people naturally just have fewer of them. And the antinatalist crowd and the misanthropic crowd are, are pleased as punch that humans are having fewer children and they want to push that trend even further. Well, I'm telling you, demographic collapse will be no picnic. Societies that are top-heavy with post-productive senior citizens, uh, one, are less productive. The younger people have to work harder and get to keep less of what they make because they need to support the gerontocracy. But also, societies like that are just, they're more risk-averse. Old people have more to lose, and they tend to be more cautious. And this country was not built on caution. You know, the, uh, the dynamism of the American economy and the, the dynamism of the global, you know, Pax Americana American empire was not built on timidity. It was not built on social and personal conservatism, which is not to denigrate conservatism in the whole. Some things are worth conserving. I believe that the seemingly countervailing forces of novelty seeking, which I have certainly embraced in my life and conservation or conservatism are both useful aspects, and that if one comes to dominate the other, to, to have more strength, more push than the other, then that's going to steer us off of the 
the ideal path and either into something, you know, reckless or something stagnant. A growing human population, particularly one that consumes a lot of uh, materials to sustain our technology, is a burden on the ecosphere. It's not a burden on the planet. The planet will be fine. But the non-human life on planet Earth has certainly suffered as an advance, you know, as a result of our advancing technology and our industrialism. But if you think overpopulation is a problem, well, just just wait until you get a taste of demographic collapse. If for no other reason, then we're still going to need to do a lot of labor, but we won't have enough laboring bodies and we'll have to maximize our use of technology just to sustain our aging populations. I'm also very interested in how our society has been shaped by life online. You know, when I was in my 20s, in the 1990s, there was a very famous document that I think was penned by John Perry Barlow and distributed by the Electronic Frontier Foundation, basically just trumpeting the fact that online life was going to disempower the gatekeepers, was going to erode the authority of government and big corporations, and that has not happened. What has happened is that it has driven a sort of tribalism, because when you're online, when you're talking to somebody or about somebody in a public forum, even if you are supposedly talking to them, really you're talking to your audience. You are demonstrating, you are signaling to your tribe that you hold the right beliefs and that you despise the people who hold opposite beliefs. And it really makes personal good faith attempts at communication nearly impossible in a public forum. And of course, for those in real positions of political and economic power, it is it makes great sense for them to encourage the squabbling of, you know, the working classes, of the masses, for us to despise one another more than we resent their hold on power. And the conflicts, you know, the social conflicts, we usually think of as being between left and right, red and blue, liberal and conservative. But I'm more interested in the emerging conflicts between generations and between the sexes. And I won't dwell on that now, but it is a topic that is of interest and that you'll probably hear addressed in the KMO show from time to time. All right, and with the rebranding of the podcast comes new theme music. So what you're hearing behind me right now is a track called Big Ass Robots by Holizna. I found this on the free music archive on WFMU, a freeform, formerly New York City radio station. I think it's in New Jersey now, but it still serves the New York metropolitan area. And uh, it's something that I discovered while living in New York City and uh, I cherish. So I'm very happy that the new theme music for the KMO show comes via the WFMU Free Music Archive. So this outro track is called Big Ass Robots. The intro music that you heard at the beginning is called Bad Acid, which is funny because the vibe that I'm getting from that is not of a bad acid trip. <laughs> I don't know what the artist had in mind, but this music is used with permission from Holizna. So thank you. I'll post a link to the body of Holizna's music on the Free Music Archive in the show notes for this episode, which is on rss.com, but I did secure a domain name for the show. It is kmo.show. I love the rhyme. 
So KMO.show is where you can find this. I will be putting the first few episodes on the existing Sea Realm RSS feed just so that there'll be an audience, you know, for the first few episodes. But do go to KMO.show and subscribe to the new feed because eventually I will stop putting new episodes of the KMO show on the Sea Realm RSS feed. All right, I think that's about all I have to say for this introductory episode. I intend to mostly be talking to guests, not solo shows like this. Although if you like these solo type rants, then the Sea Realm Vault podcast will be the place for you. Because while I do have guests on that show, there's also just a lot more of me talking. And if you want more of me talking in a short form video format, well, I do have a YouTube channel. It's called Out of My Head. And if you just type the at sign and then O-U-T-T-A-M-Y-H-E-A-D into a YouTube search engine, you should be able to find me. Finally, in closing, I would just like to say that I very much enjoy hearing from listeners. Many good friends that I have started out as Sea Realm listeners, and I later met them in real life, and relationships blossomed. I'm confident that that pattern will continue into the future. But I also understand that most of the people who listen to this podcast will never reach out, will never post a comment, never send me an email, um, and, and never interact with me directly. And you know what? That's perfectly okay. If you wish to be a member of the silent majority, I welcome you and encourage you in that role. All right. The very first episode, the first proper episode of this podcast will be released in the next day or two. And it is a trialogue with Michael Garfield, the host of the Future Fossils podcast, uh, his friend and my new friend, Kevin Wolmut, and yours truly. So that'll be out in the next day or two. And uh, if there are any topics that you would like for me to cover, if there are guests that you would like me to talk to, better than a guest suggestion, way better than a guest suggestion, is an introduction to a person whom you believe would be a promising guest for the program, somebody that you'd like to hear me talk to. If you'd like to send a group email to that person and me, my email address is kmo at crealm.com. That's the letter C and then a dash and then R-E-A-L-M.com. I might set up a uh, KMO show address, but I haven't done so yet. And finally, I, I do have a Patreon. It is patreon.com slash KMO. And I post a lot of things there that are free. Every time I put up a new YouTube video, I'll post a link to it on my Patreon feed. And uh, typically whenever I read an article that I think is of interest, I will post a link to it there as well. So even if you're not supporting me on Patreon, it is still worth your time to check in with my Patreon feed because there's lots of good material there. All right, that's it for this introductory zero episode of the KMO Show. Thanks for listening, and I look forward to talking to you in the future. Stay well.